Welcome to Grover Center's Conversations on the Street, a Shelby County Bicentennial podcast project hosted by Grover Center and recorded in its exhibit, The Streets of Old Shelby. Over the course of this next year, we'll be taking a look at the fabric of Shelby County, how our past informs our present, and what legacy means to different people. Each episode will examine our historical events and figures, as well as contemporaries on the chosen topic through conversational interviews. At the end of each episode, we'll also be featuring musical selections from local musicians. This is Conversations on the Street, and we're so glad that we ran into you. In 1822, more than four-fifths of Indiana was covered in forests. In Shelbyville, one settler remarked that the forests were so thick and fallen trees so large that water stood where it fell, that it sat until percolation or evaporation took over. The platting of Shelbyville was still a year off, and even after Abel Cole submitted the map to the commissioners, the configuration of the new town existed only on paper. The public square only took shape in art and imagination. Yet the function of a square established with the Greek Agora in 500 BCE was already in use, a public gathering place for market purposes and a canvas to paint the public's voices upon, a place to share, create, and have conversations with community members and with politicians. In fact, early into Shelbyville's development, the new community members gathered at the crux of a tree to hold the community's first election, selecting Major Ashbell Stone as the Major of Militia a position uncommon for the era or area, but chosen to match a perceived need by the people for the young community. This year marks the 200th anniversary of Shelbyville, and while we no longer have a major of militia or elections in the crux of trees, we still rely on the voices of the many to select a person or people to serve the community and to help meet the community's needs. The office of mayor in Shelbyville was created with the town's incorporation in 1850 under the state's previous constitution. 156 votes were cast, and George Carruthers Sr. was elected the first mayor of Shelbyville. Other than a name, we don't have much more on Mayor Carruthers, no diaries, and no recorded conversations to look back upon. With that in mind, I turn our attention to 172 years after the first mayor of Shelbyville was elected. Our podcast not only allows us the opportunity to capture the thoughts of elected officials, but also their voice. Today, I'm joined by Shelbyville Mayor Tom DeBon. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here, Alex. Thanks for having me. You know, before we get into legacy and all of the other things that we usually touch on in this podcast, let's start with who you are. Tell us about how you became mayor, um, how long you've been in this position. Well, so you kind of have to go back to my college days. Uh, I went to Franklin College, and uh, they required an internship as part of your experience. So I was an intern for Jim Lisher, who passed away recently, a former prosecutor. And my second semester, my senior year, I worked for him and uh, had thoughts of potentially going to law school. Uh, and in the process of my internship, I made some, some very key friendships with some folks, and one of those was Bob Williams. Uh, Bob was a uh, former police chief. He was former city councilman. He ultimately became mayor. And uh, in 1993, he hired me to run his planning commission. And so I worked for Bob in the planning commission from 93 until 2011. And in uh, 2011, I was elected mayor of Shelbyville. 
So in that period of time, I had worked for Bob Williams, Betsy Steven, uh, Frank Zur, and Scott Ferguson. So I'd worked for uh, four different mayors, uh, two Republicans, two Democrats. And so uh, in the opportunities that I had uh, working for those four individuals, I saw um, a bunch of things that I thought could be done differently uh, had I been the mayor. And uh, when the opportunity presented itself, that's why I ran. So you were elected in 2011. Correct. Started in 2012. Correct. I'm in my 12th year or uh, 11th year as mayor. But a lifelong resident of Shelby County? Yeah, yeah. So I was born in Montana. My dad was in the military at the time and was deployed or not deployed, but stationed in Great Falls, Montana. Uh, He was a jet jet engine mechanic on fighter jets. And uh, we had uh, some distant family out there anyway. And so we stayed out there for a little bit. But then uh, by the time it was uh, time for me to uh, enter into uh, elementary school, we had moved back uh, onto the homestead that's been in our family since the 1850s. And uh, my parents actually took over the family farm. And uh, so I went to Flat Rock Elementary and then Southwestern High School and then Franklin College. So the majority of my life has been spent in and around Shelby County. How has Shelby County changed from your childhood to today? You know, it's funny. I, When I look at Facebook, there are so many different niche groups out there. There's the Flat Rock Norristown Lewis Creek group that I follow because I know all those people and it's been a great opportunity to reflect on what that was when you had Cochran's Grocery in Lewis Creek and, and you had all these mom and pop establishments in the county. Uh, Norristown had a grocery. Uh, Marietta had a grocery. And uh, you came to Shelbyville, and Shelbyville had multiple jewelers and things like that. And all these, again, you know, family-oriented or family-owned type businesses. That's been the biggest change that I've seen. It's been the commercialization and the um, loss of those uh, types of uh, locations. And so now what I'm seeing is kind of a return to that. I think it's been interesting from my point of view you know, being born in 1964, living through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and now in this this uh, millennium, seeing how we've come kind of full circle or starting to come full circle back to those uh, that desired mom and pop type of environment, especially in our downtowns and smaller communities. In your time as mayor then, what kind of changes have you seen that you've been a part of that you're particularly proud of? Well, you know, it's funny, again, taking a step back as planning director, we went through a significant amount of planning and future planning for what the community could look like. We recognized that we needed to attract new residents. We recognized that we needed to attract new talent um, because that we were an aging community. And so our comprehensive plan and small area plans uh, specifically dealt with those things. As mayor, it's given me a great opportunity now on the implementation side. You know, the public square, we're January of 2022 here. Uh, the public square is, is, is essentially complete uh, with the renovations minus a few outstanding punch list items. Uh, and that's something we talked about in 2006-2007. And uh, for whatever reason, those things didn't get done by prior administrations. And so I took it upon myself to say, look, we received a lot of public input on this. We received a lot of feedback on what the downtown should look like and, and this function it should, should serve. We owe it to the community to follow through on those things. And so those are the things I'm proudest of. The other thing would be the educational programming that we've started as a community. We knew that as a region and in comparison to the state, we had lower educational attainment levels 
for post-secondary, meaning people who've graduated high school. We weren't following the trends in the state or in the region that our kids were getting additional education after high school. And so we knew that was a problem because other than ag- agriculture, uh, we are a manufacturing community. And we had been hearing for several years from our uh, industry partners that we weren't providing them with an educated workforce. And so we started the programming for those things with uh, the Rose Holman project with Project Impact or Advantage Shelby County or the charter school with the Excel Center for our adults. And then, you know, the uh, programming we're doing now with the Early Learning Center uh, that we're getting ready to build soon, hopefully. And so those are the things that will impact people's lives uh, for generations, you know, and we talk about uh, generational poverty. We talk about generational crime and addiction and things like that. And we see the data that tells us that children who are not prepared for kindergarten uh, check a lot of boxes. That means that they have uh, more obstacles in their life than someone who is kindergarten ready. And so I think for us to truly make a meaningful change in the lives of, of, of the people in our community we have to literally attack those things at, at its base, and that is kindergarten readiness. And there's, it's more, there's more to that. It's more complicated. But it's about that wraparound service, you know. If a kid isn't kindergarten ready, is it because dad's out of work or one of the parents is incarcerated or there are substance abuse issues or uh, if they're food challenged or homeless or whatever. And so this is our way in that door to deal with those root causes, So those are the things that I'm proudest of, Alex, because those are the things that are meaningful change that will will change the trajectory of the lives of a lot of people for the better. Foundational change, the kind of building blocks, the very sub-level of this seems to be at the heart of a lot of these projects that you just talked about. How much does that factor into when you're approaching a project, when you're deciding for the city to begin into a project? Well, I think it's just like anything else. The city has two basic functions. One is to provide those basic services. So, you know, the streets get cleaned, the snow gets plowed, the toilets flush, trash gets picked up, you could dial 911, somebody shows up and responds. The other thing is to work as a community to improve the lives of the people that live in it. When we are approached or when we're developing projects, it is what is the outcome? You know, what's the potential outcome versus the cost? and who is going to be the greatest beneficiary. And so that's really kind of the matrix of decision-making that I use, and that's how we attack those things as a team. Uh, And and the team is large. The team is uh, hospital, education, county government, city government, and all of those agencies in between, you know, law enforcement and teachers and just everyone. Uh, And in most cases, it's industrial leadership or it's the citizens in the community. I mean, None of this has been done by one person. Uh, It's not been so much governing by consensus, but it's certainly been developing the um, path forward and then bringing in the needed input to create the details of of, uh, implementation. Dealing with all of those different personalities, dealing with these projects that have a wide gamut, I'm curious to what a day in your life looks like I think it depends. Uh, there's 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 two different variants of that day. Uh, and funny, I use the word variant because we're dealing with a pandemic right now. Uh, but my day typically has a scheduled portion of the day, wherein I, the night before I go to bed, I look at my calendar for the next day and then mentally prepare myself for 
what I need to do and kind of take an inventory of where I need to be. And then when I get to work, I'm, I'm typically presented with this has happened or this person has called or this situation exists. My day is very flexible and uh, I spend a lot of time shifting things around, but it's filled with dealing with situations or checking the status of a project or talking to potential investors in projects here who are either existing manufacturers or potential manufacturers. Or now, uh, with the completion of the downtown project, it's talking to potential investors in commercial space. Uh, we've got uh, one space in particular that we have two, potentially three different independent groups looking at revitalizing that space. So almost overnight, we went from no one being interested in our downtown to a significant interest in our downtown. And in, in this case in particular, people feuding over this one space in our downtown. Uh, it is everything we said it was going to be, but we now can show people that we knew what we were talking about. I'd like to jump back to your experience as a city planner. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned that you were a part of multiple mayoral ships mm -hmm. uh, from both parties. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm uh, interested in is working with people from different political parties. What differences did you see in their leaderships? Right. And then how has that changed? Has it changed today? The good thing about local government is you see very little partisanship. Now, you know, there will be individuals who will approach you with their particular philosophy on, you know, right wing, left wing, conservative, liberal, whatever. But by and large, the people that I've interacted with in the last nearly 30 years, very few of them have been interested in a political ideology uh, as much as they've all been interested in what's better for the community. You know, how does this make Shelbyville, Shelby County work? How does it benefit the people in the community? And so it's been, I've been fortunate. I mean, there have been those, those occasions where a particular mayor or a particular city council person would approach me and say, I don't think that's a good idea. It's going to agitate this group of people, or this may be a hot button issue for these voters. But by and large, it hasn't happened very often. Um, it's been pretty easy to build that group, uh, that, that core group to move the community forward. Now, I will say that the cooperation between city and county government, between the schools and the uh, industrial community is stronger than it's ever been. I can't take full credit for that because, again, a lot of these people are people that I worked with in a different capacity when I was the planning director. But now, as mayor, I've realized my biggest strength is the ability to convene. And so uh, it's my uh, uh, opportunity to pull people into a room and say, you know, this is the problem as I perceive it. Do you see it the same way or closely? And can we work together to to uh, solve it or improve it. And so I would say that's been the biggest change or shift that I've seen um, in my role as working for former mayors and then being a mayor is is the ability to pull these people together. So even less partisanship, I guess. Oh, significantly. You know, I mean, 2022, we're in an election year for county government uh, offices and some state offices. So, you know, there will be a little bit more of that discussion, but it won't impact the decision making on the local level. Um, we'll be, it'll be more uh, in the context of that state representative may not like this because it's a hot button issue in their election or 
you know, the governor's not up for re-election. He's, he's in his second term. But in years past, it would have been, look, you may not want to present this to the governor today because this could be something they would not want to deal with right now. So you have to have some savvy in knowing how to deal with those things. But very few times have we had to modify our course or uh, do a turnabout uh, to a different direction because of those things. We've had to adjust schedules, no doubt. Uh, budget years, you know, at the state happen every two years. So the next budget year would be next year, 2023. And so, you know, in those off years, we spend that time planning so that then we can make the ask in the budget year. So there's a lot of moving parts to these things, but very few of them are ever truly affected by true politics. Thinking about a kid that has interest in a leadership position like a mayor, what kind of advice would you give them going through life to get to that rule? Or would you dissuade them from getting into that type no, of No, you know, and, and that is a real concern of mine because aside from the local level, even on the state level, but certainly on the federal level, partisanship and just anger uh, and vitriol are, are overwhelming. And so for a young person who could potentially be interested in a career as an elected official, I can understand why they would take a step back and say, maybe this isn't for me. I would say that the advice I would give them would be, look, if you're interested in doing something on the local level, get with those folks on the local level and spend the time and talk to them, you know, in a in a one-on-one setting. Um, come to a council meeting or a commissioner's meeting or, you know, whatever meeting that you, you feel is appropriate or that interests you and find out, you know, who that person that you think you might best align with and sit and have a chat with them. Because I think most elected officials would like the opportunity to explain more in detail what they do. Because quite frankly, you know, I know Mr. Bradburn, who's a member of the board here, uh, sends all of his kids to a government meeting or a number of government meetings as part of his class. And I think that's great. The kids find out where the meeting is and what the building is, and they may talk to the mayor or one of the councilmen as they're signing their slip and what have you. But Quite frankly, what happens in those meetings is just a very brief snapshot of the work it takes to get there. And I would say for every proposal that comes to the city or the county council, there's, you know, three, four, five of those that never made it because they didn't have the wherewithal to get there for any number of reasons. And so it's behind the scene or the back of house things that you're going to get as a young person who's interested uh, by talking to someone directly that you're not going to get by just attending a meeting. Is there any sort of class or um, volunteer opportunity that you wish you had done in your youth that you think would have prepped you for some of the things that you've experienced in your life? No, not particularly. I mean, certainly I would tell every kid, you know, I'm an example of the value of, of, of internships, the value of uh, spending that time making those relationships and paying attention. Uh, so I don't know that there's anything that I would offer differently than that. I'm going to give the standard stay in school, don't do drugs, you know, all those things, study hard, you know, work hard. Uh, The world doesn't owe you a favor. You know, you get through life by your achievements. Uh, I'm not as naive to say that it's not about who you know, but it's then capitalizing upon those opportunities. You know, I can can introduce you to person XYZ, but I can't do the job for you or I can't perform in that situation. And so... Um, I would say just, you know, do your best, be authentic, 
and and think about uh, try to see the bigger picture especially when you're a young individual you know my wife and i talk about this all the time uh we've got a 22 year old that'll be graduating soon and you know when we were graduated from college it was well i'm a graduate now the world is going to come knocking on my door because they need me and then you find out you know, the world's going to go fine with or without you you've got to make your own way in life and so i think a lot of that is to my young my 22 year old daughter or or any person that's been through that situation. Uh, it's about knowing your value and, and knowing how then to leverage your value into that position that you want to get where you'd like to go. When we think about legacy, we often in this podcast talk about these things that are being handed down, passed on. Mm -hmm. In your role as mayor, it's sort of a different version of legacy what you inherit from a predecessor and then what you leave behind. Could you speak to legacy in your role? Well, you know, in my world, and you, you, you touched on a little bit, it was you inherit the policies of the administration and not just the immediate administration, but the administrations before you, you know, <clears throat> as a mayor, you know, we're subject to four-year terms. And I would challenge anyone who walks into that office, regardless of the amount of experience beforehand, to really feel like they know what they're doing within the first year to 18 months, because it's going to take you that long to figure out the routine with the council, with the board of works, with your department heads. You know, in my first seven days in office, first 10 days in office, we had a homicide. We had a police action shooting. We had a traffic fatality. And then not long after that, we had a flood. And so, you know, there's no mayor's school, no, no newly elected officials training that's going to prepare you for those things. And so you are dealing with those things in addition to the things that you've inherited, either budget items or policy or things like that. And so understanding your role, understanding the things that you can impact versus the things you can't impact, and then putting those things into the context of the situations you've inherited takes you quite some time to figure out, now what do I do? And so I spent, because I was a department head for the four prior mayors, I had an idea of, you know, the direction they thought the community should go in or the budgetary decisions they made or the contracts that the city was obligated to. Uh, and so it gave me then the opportunity to come in and say, I know the backstory on these things. I know what we were trying to accomplish but maybe there's a better way to do it. Or economic conditions change. You know, we were able to refinance or, or retire early debt from prior administrations because the market was better. So we were able to do that, but then continue the mission forward. So if an infrastructure project for road reconstruction was bonded or a building out at the Intelliplex or any number of things, we still were able to achieve that goal. We just did it differently. So I would say that's really kind of the legacy of things. You know, what I'm going to leave the community uh, when I leave uh, for the next mayor, uh, I think we're going to be in a very strong position financially with, with a renovated downtown, with more jobs than we've ever seen, with more net assessed value than the community's ever seen. So I think whoever takes that position after me is going to be in a pretty good shape. You had mentioned that it takes, you know, a little bit to know what your role is. I'm also interested on the flip side of that. Do you find that there is a strong disconnect in the community or not even locally, but just in other communities as well 
uh, about what a mayor can and can't do. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's interesting. I, I don't spend a lot of time on social media, but it's interesting when I do pick those stories to read. It's intentional because when I see, you know, the Addison Times or the Shelby County Post or the Shelbyville News and they say, Plan Commission approves this, whatever it is. And then I read the comments and the comments are, the city needs to bring Target. The city needs to open this. The city needs to do that. And a lot of that is just a lack of understanding of government's role and their ability. You know, very early on in my first term, I reached out to Target, offered to make the trip to Minneapolis, had a real estate broker on retainer who was trying to set up those appointments. And Target was very clear and said, look, you don't have the population, you don't have the disposable income, and your region doesn't meet the numbers that we need to put a target in your community. We did the same thing with Kohl's. We did the same thing with Meyer. You know, so we know what those metrics are. We know that we have to have a certain population density. We know that our net assessed value needs to be at a certain number. We know that disposable income needs to be at a certain number. And we know that regional draw has to be at a certain number. So those are the things we work towards. So when you see 1,300 new homes being built, when you see X number of jobs being created, when you see uh, wages and salaries continuing to climb, those are all in an effort then to get to that point where Target and Meyer and Kohl's will look at us as a community. They're all interconnected. You know, none of these things function independently. Educational attainment leads to better marketability, which makes you more employable, which leads to a greater salary, which pushes wages up because there's stress on the market for competition. And so all of those things have a purpose. And all of the things that we do are to get us to that point. But the role that government serves, the government doesn't create jobs. The only jobs government creates is government jobs. So that's guys at the street department or the water resource recovery or the police department or wherever. But what we do is create a condition that's favorable for job creation. And that is amenities, education, housing, you know, places people want to be that attracts talent that will then fill those jobs. In 200 years, I know that it's a pretty big jump and it's hard to kind of future cast like that. I don't think that anybody that walked into Shelbyville as a swamp would have imagined a downtown that's fully developed as it is now. What do you think the future holds for Shelbyville? Well, you know, uh, what is the butterfly effect? One thing will, will determine the outcome of a multitude of things, and all these things change exponentially, right? And so if we were to stay on the path that we're on now, if we were to continue the policies and the partnerships that we've created in the last several years, I think Shelbyville... Uh, will be prosperous and thriving. You know, I've always said Shelbyville should do more than just survive. It should thrive. And that's been one of those things that I've been hammering on my entire political career is that it's not enough just to get by, that we want to leave a legacy for our children. We want our children to come back. I want my oldest daughter to go to Amsterdam or Frankfurt or Paris and, and get that experience but then I want her to come home and raise her children and live here and contribute to the community. And it's, I think it's the same for most parents. And that's an interesting point because as we were beginning the discussions on downtown and revitalizing the downtown, there were several downtown merchants who approached me who weren't necessarily for or against the project, but they couldn't understand why. And several of those had children who were not living here. You know, some lived in Chicago, some lived in 
uh, St. Louis. Some lived in, in other places, but not here. And so then I put the question back to them, why do your children or your grandchildren not live here? Well, because they say there's nothing to do. Well, then let's fix that. Let's create an environment where they want to be here. Let's make sure that we have the best schools, that we have a safe community, that we have recreational opportunities so that those places uh, are attractive to young families. Oh, and by the way, because we're all getting older, the needs of those people with young families are also the same as the needs of the elderly. So if I'm mobility challenged, uh, meaning I'm using a walker or a wheelchair or whatever, I need the same sidewalks and ramps as someone pushing a stroller, you know, or a toddler on a bicycle or whatever. And so safe, clean neighborhoods, educational opportunity, recreational opportunity, those are the things that I think will continue to grow uh, for the next 200 years. One of the biggest missteps, I think, in our history books is the lack of mayoral voices from the past. Mm -hmm. um, if I were to sit down and do some research, other than maybe city meeting minutes, I'm not going to actually be able to hear what that mayor was thinking. Right. This type of technology presents us with a unique opportunity. What would you want that mayor 200 years from now to understand? Uh, what would you hope to pass on to them? Or what kind of conversation would you like to have? Well, I think... I mean, my belief is that the mayor 200 years from now will have the same goals as the mayor had 100 years ago. And that is that we're looking for opportunities to benefit and, and, and to improve the lives of the people who live in our communities. The Grover Center provides a great opportunity for some insight. When I look at McFadden's book or I look at John Wetnight's book or, or any of the other local history books, there are some glimpses there. Uh, with the Addison Times and the um, discussion about what happened 10, 20, you know, all the way back to 100 years from now, there's a glimpse there as well. And so I would say that there is some opportunity in this being our bicentennial year, there's some opportunity to look at those things and see that the intent has been pretty consistent. You know, I had the opportunity to know Jerry Higgins, who was a former mayor, Ralph Fanata, who was a former mayor, you know, and some of those folks. And, and in all of those informal discussions is it was it's always been about what's been best for the community now their methodology may be different than mine you know we're talking micro and macro so on the macro side you know we all want the same thing but in the micro they may have done things differently or or hope for different outcomes and i think it'll be the same 200 years from now is your office the same office that former mayors would have had or would you have been located well so remember that City Hall burned down in 1927. And so my office has been the same since the mayor's in 1928. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Yeah. And so, so yeah, there's some history in that building for sure. And so, you know, Ralph Fanata's office, Jerry Higgins' office, Bob Williams, you know, all of them, we've all had the same office. And I've been in meetings, you know, a lot of meetings over the last almost 30 years in that office with a mayor of some type. Is there ever a moment that you stop and think, like, if the walls could talk? Oh, every day. So even this morning, uh, as I'm walking in uh, to the office, and I'm looking at my schedule, and I'm saying hello to the people that are milling about, uh, I look around, and I see the plaque on the wall from when the building was built in 1928. And I remember the discussions, some of the dispirited discussions that were held in the council chambers or in the mayor's office. And then you know, even reflecting back on some of the things I've read uh, in the information that you all curate here. And so I think, yeah, there's there's some great history here. 
Uh, you don't have to go to the Library of Congress or you don't have to go to the rotunda at the State House. You really can sit right here and see uh, some pretty significant things that have happened. Well, Tom, is there anything else that you would like to include this that we didn't touch on today? It's a great opportunity for me to be here. I don't think that people fully understand the value that the Grover Center brings to the community. And one of the things, and I don't know that you've been given, you and your staff, the credit you deserve, but, you know, when we were doing the downtown renovation project, we leaned on you guys heavily for the history of the fountain, the history of the statue. Uh, You provided us renderings of the different configurations of the public square over the over the history of the city of Shelbyville, which you know incidentally uh, helped us determine the layout for the square uh, because we wanted it to be historically accurate, uh, but still meet the uh, needs of today's traffic. And so you know you all played a huge part in that, and uh, I I would hope that the members of the community who are listening or have the opportunity at some point to listen uh, understand the value that you all bring. Uh, to virtually everything that I've talked about today. Established in 2018, Encomium Ensemble is a three-member group based in the central Indiana area that plays a unique blend of music focused on the style of early music. Using a variety of instruments, they play songs from all over the world, some of which date back to the 1500s, and one song can even find its origins in the mid-500s. The word encomium itself has historic roots. A Latin word derived from Greek, it refers to a speech or piece of writing that praises someone or something highly. As many of the ensemble's musical selections have been used as a setting for poetry or hymns, the word is certainly fitting. Today's song is Greece Horeb Syracuse, found in 1819's an original collection of song tunes by Arthur Clifton.